0: we can figure that one out. Well, it's great to be here together. We have been studying the book of John for a long time and this is our last our last time, sort of a reprise. In August I preached two messages on John 17. Some of you know. That's the great Lord's prayer that he prayed to his father a few hours before he died on the cross. Um, Before I could preach the third sermon in the series of three on this chapter. Um, I started running a high fever. I was tested for COVID. Somebody thought I, I had mentioned that maybe I'd had it, but I didn't. Praise the Lord. Got over the infection, but uh, missed preaching this last sermon. So here's the third message that I'm giving today. And I must say as I begin this that I'm, in some ways I'm heartbroken to finish this book. I may never get to preach it again. I'm getting that old. And it uh, actually affects my heart a lot to just kind of do this last thing. Well, put on your mental running shoes because we're gonna be moving fast. We have a, a restricted sermon schedule because we, we're we trying to make things a little shorter so that the kids in the, in the kids program can do what they do without too much extension of that. So, um, but let me say that um, it is a daunting and humbling task to do anything close to justice to this amazing prayer. But uh, you know failure on my part does not make this prayer any less wonderful, so let us remember that. Set the scene with me. Jesus has left the upper room with his men. He's praying a prayer of victory right before he finishes the work that he came to do he has just uh, wrapped up his farewell words to his 11 disciples. One of them is gone. He'll be returning in a bit to, uh, to betray Jesus. That's Judas. But Jesus has kind of wrapped up his words to them. And these are the last of those words before he begins praying Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. That's just such an interesting phrase. Will leave me alone. But he says, basically, even though you guys are going to fail me and leave me, I'm actually not alone. The Father is with me, and he's about to pray to his Father, raise his eyes, and begin this prayer. But he ends with one more verse that gives you sort of the the heart and the, the tone of the prayer. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. He's not going to take that away from them by praying that they will never have any troubles of any kind. They will have trials. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And then he prays in that encouraging heart of an overcomer. Um, What a comfort it must have been to these men to hear Jesus pray for them. Because you know they're listening to all of this. Uh, This is a prayer that's not just prayed to God, but in the hearing of those that need encouragement. Uh, Because they will fail, they did fail. Uh, When Jesus got to Gethsemane and he prayed his guts out, all his men were supposed to pray with him, Uh, he asked them to, but they slept instead. Or when he was betrayed by Judas and then he was arrested right in front of his men, they all ran, they said they wouldn't, but they did. And then when Peter tried to be a bit of a hero and he kind of slid into the courtyard by the fire, you know, he melted like a salted slug. under the questioning of a simple maid. Don't forget what a monstrous sin these things are for such men to abandon their kind and innocent master on the day of his great suffering. And so we know that they do fail. But more importantly, we know that Jesus prays for them. Uh, Jesus might well have answered their abandonment by abandoning them. Because he he already knows what they're going to do. But no, instead of sacking them, He prays for them. It's not exactly the prayer they might have wanted. Jesus makes no pretense of praying that the Father would prevent those men from failing. Uh, I suppose he could have prayed that, I guess, but he didn't. It was more like what Jesus prayed for Peter in Luke 22. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked permission to have Peter, to sift him like wheat, like very fine which permission was granted? Um, you know, Peter failing by the fire is the evidence of that. But Jesus assures Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you are turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Simon, your your faith won't fail because I'm praying that it won't, but uh, even though you do. And so then he calls him Peter, verse 34, This, by the way, is that one time when Jesus ever called him by that nickname he gave him, Peter. He said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, Jesus had, in fact, prayed for him that God would sustain his faith. So even though he knew Peter would deny him, Jesus will not deny Peter. When it looks like Peter is quitting on Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't quit on him. This prayer in John 17 is that same prayer writ large. It expresses the heart of Jesus for people like Peter, people like us, who have lots of reasons to be disappointed with ourselves. Like uh, we aren't the Christian we should have been. We didn't do what we should and we did do what we shouldn't. This is peculiarly a Christian struggle for two or three reasons. Like one is that the standard of excellence we have set before us is very high and we know what it is. Um, And then we're given extraordinary resources, that's the second thing, to achieve that standard and so we have no excuses. And then there's one more thing that we know and that is that our failures sent Jesus to the cross and they cost something very dear and infinitely powerful. And so we, of all people on the planet, don't get to take the way we live as some light thing. And so our disappointment in ourselves. We ought to do better. And so by standards, I'm talking about holiness and character like Christ and fruit of the spirit, that kind of stuff. And for resources, abiding in Christ in his word, walking by the Holy Spirit. We're not left to our own in this. We've been given all we need for life and godliness, all the stuff that we need, so we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, so that we won't be like the disciples who slept when they were supposed to pray. Jesus told those guys afterwards, just before he's arrested, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so as people of flesh, we too know what it's like to come up short. We have lots of things that we're not happy with about ourselves. Ah. yeah, such as our you know our flimsy prayer life, or the fact that many of us share the gospel so seldom. But it can get very very practical. The things you're disappointed in and not satisfied with in your life, not just because of sin and cowardice or being pretty pretty wimpy on spiritual disciplines, but because, for instance, you can't keep your house picked up to the standard of your mother-in-law. Uh, you're a mother of preschoolers after all. you know, got regrets that spend their whole time undoing everything you're trying to do. Demons of disorder. And there's another, never enough time to put it back, it doesn't seem like. Or maybe you never park in your car in the garage because the clutter has done a hostile takeover of the center lane. and Or maybe you're disappointed because you're not earning what your education and intelligence would seem to merit. Uh, and if you're a perfectionist, I mean, you carry a heavy burden, almost as big as having to live with a perfectionist. Um, And so you better keep your sock drawer organized. But even if you never overspend at Christmas, you always call your grandma every day, you write thank you notes promptly, you pay all your bills on time, your budget would make Dave Ramsey proud, you never yell at slow drivers, you never sleep in and miss your devotions, even if you never sound like your mother you can still be disappointed with yourself for a host of other things such as not memorizing more scripture for not fitting into your wedding dress for not taking down your Christmas lights before New Year's Day like your obnoxious neighbor or for not having the fabulous home that your brother-in-law owns, the jerk who slept through algebra, dropped out of school and never takes his Christmas lights down. But to be serious, Most parents have the nagging feeling that they're doing something wrong. Many married people are afraid that they're not making their spouse as happy and fulfilled as they deserve. There's always something to make us feel like a failure, to make us disappointed. There's always something that needs painting. There's always dust bunnies under the beds. There's stuff in the yard that needs pruning, fertilizing, weeding, mulching, something. And there's always stuff in our hearts, lust, improper attitudes, stuff like that. As a result, we need prayer from Jesus himself. Nobody knows that better than Jesus. The prayer in John 17 includes 26 verses, but only seven requests. And so I'm gonna organize my comments today around those seven things Jesus asked from his Father a little bit of this is review. The first one is, the first request, glorify your son that he may glorify you. Jesus is driven by a single passionate purpose and delight to promote his father's glory. And the way that can be done is if he glorifies, if the father glorifies the son, which is the father's single passionate purpose and delight. So as Jesus prays this, I mean, he's about to be abandoned by his closest friends and uh, mistreated and bruised and even killed by his enemies. But he has the Father who is enough for the joy and the love he has always had from all eternity. The glory here, of course, that he prays for involves the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, all of which shine a powerful light on the greatness of both the Father and the Son and so that's in verses 1 through 5, See uh, message number 1. Go back to that for a review. Number 2, guard them from spiritual collapse. The second request comes in, actually in verse 11. But in, in verse 6, at the start of that section, the disciples are called the men you gave me from the world. Now there are two kinds of people in the world Jesus will talk about here. Those who are in it and of it, that is they belong to it. Their, their character and their life comes right out of it. And then there are those who are in it, but no longer of it, that would be his disciples. Those who are in it and of it are united in opposition to God in a thousand different ways. Those who are in it but no longer of it are united in devotion to Christ and truth. They're a gift of the Father to the Son. They know they're know they no longer of the world, but they are still in it. And that means they need a lot of help, thus prayer. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. This is verse 11. And I'm coming to you. So the physical presence of Jesus that they are all used to, that's going to be gone. That means that they're going to need this massive help. Now, Jesus is going to give four requests here that relate to this for his disciples. Now, this is request two, but there's one request in the first section that has to do with Jesus and his father. There's four requests in this middle section where Jesus prays for his disciples, and then there will be two more at the end when he begins to pray for everybody that's going to be a believer, including us. Even these requests for his disciples, I think, apply to us sufficiently, and so we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we go through it. So here's what he prays, and remember that the disciples are listening. Holy Father, keep them in your name you gave me. That is, you gave me to reveal to them. Keep them in it preserve them so that they don't collapse under pressure and abandon the faith when they fail, which is called here, your name that you gave me. This is the revelation to reveal to them the Father's character and his glory made known to the disciples through Jesus. And so he says, you gave me, that they may be one just as we are. Now he's gonna pick up on that and so we're going to cover that mostly later. But Jesus knows that if the world has its way with them, then they will divide and quarrel just like all earthlings without God are prone to do. So, uh, so more on that later. But request to is really similar to what Jesus prayed for Peter, that your faith may not fail. And this is going to be by the effort and almighty help of God the Father. Now this is nothing new. Jesus had been doing the same thing for the disciples right along with the, with the exception of Judas. So verse 12, as long as I was with them, I was keeping them in your name you have given me to give to them or to reveal to them. I guarded them and not one of them was destroyed except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So that's what Jesus had been doing before when they had spent daily time with him. But what about now that Jesus is gone? and leaving. Is that a time to be crushed and crushed even by sadness and by guilt? Well look at request number three, complete my joy within them. He says in verse 13, but now I'm coming to you and I say these things while I'm still in the world. Now pause right there. Why does he say these things? The things in this prayer, the things in the farewell discourses, all these things of doctrine and encouragement. What are they good for? Why is he giving them all these things? It is for joy, word based joy. So he says that they may have in themselves within and among them the joy I have in all its fullness. A powerful inner benefit of his teaching and revelation would be this unending, overflowing, unquenchable joy that Jesus himself has. The joy is first his, but he wants his, his men to enjoy and have that same joy in their hearts, and his way of passing it to them is through his words. Uh, he had just taught them many things. He taught them how they were loved. He taught them that the Spirit was coming. He taught them that he had overcome the world, and you could add many other things. Jesus is saying this in the hearing of his guys that, look, I'm praying to the Father, but you're listening to this. All the things I just gave you are the fountain of joy in your life. Now you may have defeat, you may have disappointments, you may have distress, but you can still have surpassingly full joy. As much as you can hold, as much as you need to sustain you, as much joy as I have. And I just wonder if you could possibly get an idea of how deep the happiness of Christ runs as happy as Jesus is, in all its fullness. Now the joy of Jesus is constant. In fact, uh, in spite of, of getting the truth out there means that the world's gonna hate you like an invasion of pirate zombies. Look at verse 14, I've given them your word And the world hated them, so they got the word from me which will give them joy, but what they're going to get is hatred from the world because it will be obvious more and more to the world that they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. We don't fit. Now the energy behind the world's hatred comes from the devil, so here's the next request. Number four, protect them from the evil one. I don't ask you, Jesus says, verse 15, to extract them from the world as if removal will be the only way to uh, survive all this hatred, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Now the disciples, of course, know that Jesus is leaving, You know, so why not them? They could just go with him. No, there's work to do. And that work will be opposed by the devil who is the God of this world. He's going to oppose every effort to bring out the gospel and all its preachers you know at every turn so jesus prays that the father will protect them now that tells me that they are they're not going to be living in cloisters where they're separated from all worldly contact so that they could avoid you know uh, moral pollution or persecution no in fact they will be persecuted the last verse of the last chapter said and you will be persecuted So that's not what this prayer is meant to prevent. But the father will make sure that they stand strong in defense of the gospel. He's gonna send the spirit to them so that they will know what to say when they're hauled into court. Some will be martyred precisely because God did protect them from the evil one who was wielding all the influence he could to make them denounce Jesus. But they won't do that and so who fails? Not them, the devil is the failure, because God protects us. And then comes the flip side of protection, which is, protection is defensive in nature. The fifth request is about offense. sending you know, Russell in the old line. Number five, set them apart for witness. Now, the literal translation of this sanctify is what we're using here. We could have translated it, set them apart, Meaning not so much make them holy, but set them apart for holy and godly purposes, for whatever God wants. And here the main purpose for leaving these men on earth is the extension of the gospel around the world, as the next verse makes obvious. Now he says, sanctify them, this is his prayer, by the truth. Your word is truth. By the way, it says true, not true, but truth. So to be set Apart by the truth means that as the disciples know God's word, as it sinks into their hearts, as they begin to think more and more like God does and like Jesus does, they will become more and more useful as his witnesses, motivated for it, trained for it, equipped for it by the word of God. And so then he says in verse 18, and this is why we know this is about witness, just as you sent me into the world, I too sent them into the world. And so here's a world that perishes for lack of truth, stumbles around thinking that life all depends on you know, getting their act together and checking off the right boxes and earning all the coveted bonuses. They need the gospel that liberates a soul from the idolatry of all of that. But how can they hear without a preacher, a witness? So, as Jesus sanctifies himself or sets himself apart, including the cross, he says, and for their sake I am sanctifying myself that they too may truly be sanctified. Jesus taking the lead and they in turn being sent out like he was to share the gospel, profoundly prepared for every good work, truly sanctified. Now, this is all about witness and mission And so at verse 20, the prayer expands big time. Jesus expects his answer for their sanctification for witness to be answered. So many people are gonna believe in Jesus as they go out to preach. So the sixth request is unify them for gospel impact. He says in verse 20, I'm not praying just for these men, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And that would be throughout the coming generations, not just directly from them. That would include us. And so he's praying for us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, don't misunderstand this. He's not talking about all of us joining the Trinity. But he wants us to enjoy the same oneness of heart and character and love and doctrine and joy in one another, just like the Father and the Son enjoy And this comes as we are joined to God in spiritual union or oneness, what we call in the Pauline epistles, especially being in Christ. And that really is reflected in the next phrase, that they too may be in us, in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. Now why? Well, look. Christians cannot be united like God unless their unity is based on the glory of God. Not on some other thing. This is the revelation of God that all of us know and believe. This is the thing is to unite us. Uh, unity around anything else like having, uh, you know, I don't know, be, being followers of Martin Luther or just to give an example. Or, or having the same set of taboos or traditions that commonly unite certain Christians. But he says real unity is not, that's not what he's talking about. Unity that he wants for us is based on the glory of God and Christ. And this is the glory that Jesus, if I can use the word, is giddy to, sh- he's giddy to show off this glory to the church for their amazement and delight, as we're going to see in verse 24. And then he adds this again, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and then you and me, that they may become perfected into one so that the world may realize that you sent me and love them just as you love me. Now this is not a prayer for unity for this, just for unity's sake. Sort of like, you know, Father, help all the people in the church to get along because church is so much better if people aren't fighting all the time. No, this is unity for the sake of a watching world. Jesus says it twice. Unity empowers our witness, verse 21, so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may realize that you sent me and love them, meaning love them, all believers, just as you love me. Now here's the thought behind this. Deep, genuine Christian unity can be explained only if there's a real God doing a heart miracle in people who would naturally divide from each other. People whose only common denominator really is that they all believe in Christ as the one who had been sent by the Father. How else are you can explain how so many diverse people, people from every ethnicity, people from every cultural subset, from different continents, people that speak different languages, and that they actually love each other? You know, when two disciples, a Simon and a Matthew, I'm talking about Simon the Zealot, he was a revolutionary, He said, get rid of Rome. And then there's Matthew, who happens to be a collector of Rome's taxes. When they can get along and work together, I mean, that's like having a white supremacist and an Antifa adherent on their knees in the same prayer group. That's a miracle. Without the Holy Father keeping them together around Jesus and his glory, disunity is inevitable. And so, unfortunately... (laughs) We get schisms, factions, jealousy, judgmental legalisms, a constant temptation for sinful hearts. And in fact, you've probably noticed that many of the New Testament letters deal with unity issues, theological disagreements, members at each other's throats, uh, even leaders who are vying for influence at the expense of others. On and on, that's the most natural thing. So Jesus prays that the believers will not succumb to all that, but it will take a miracle. And when that miracle happens, you know God is at work. And that is for the sake of the world. A watching world. Now I want to say that that maybe is not the only meaning of this. I'm going to give you another one in a minute. It's not just that the world will see evidence that God is real, like a miracle, because often they may not have the eyes to see it. They don't know what they're seeing. They're more likely to get the opposite impression if they see us at each other's throats. And when they see that, then uh, it tends to confirm the skepticism of the critics. Schisms make it look like the church is just one more man-made organization. And so I do want to plead for cordial Christianity before a watching world. Like Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4 striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Not that we don't maintain distinctives, but we don't air our dirty laundry, we don't broadcast our disagreements, uh, let's say about the biblical way to baptize or something like that. We don't casually label as heretics people that we know good and well are gonna be worshiping with us at the throne of God forever and ever. Yet I don't think that's the only point here. The infighting of Christians always affects the harvest like this, even if the world is watching, whether it's watching or not. When the church is fighting, it is not evangelizing. Simple as that. Schisms sap our passion, our resources, our focus. When we have in-house unity, that allows our energy to extend outward. So missional impact is trashed when Christians are preoccupied with just putting out fires among themselves. So stop fighting each other because there is a world dying out there. I think preoccupation with ourselves uh, partly explains why only 17% of American Christians surveyed could even explain what the Great Commission is. Schismatic Christians are reluctant or unable to join hands across the aisle, so to speak, for gospel efforts that require combined resources and concerted prayer. Well, to be really practical, uh, you know, a congregation that can't get along is not a place you would invite an inquisitive neighbor to come if they just wanted to know what this Jesus thing is all about. What Jesus wants for people like that is to learn through us that the Father sent Jesus into the world and that he loves people, his people, with the same love with which he loved Jesus throughout eternity. Now, if there's little love in your church, it's hard to make that case. Now, a last request, and this is where Jesus, again, shows his heart for his own glory. And this wraps up where the prayer started. Father, glorify your Son. This is the greatest verse when you realize that every prayer of Jesus is going to be answered. That turns every request of Jesus into a promise. These are promises. Um, Well, in a year of COVID anxieties, what a special assurance comes from a verse like this. And this has to do with making sure that they are with me forever and see my glory. Verse 24, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you've given me because you love me before the founding of the world. I woke up at five this morning. You can get this one verse out of my head or my heart. Uh, the basis of this request is the eternal love of the Father for the Son, which is expressed by clothing Jesus with splendor. And Jesus wants us all to live forever In the awesome glow of that love and glory by just being with him. The Father will make sure we all behold with awe the amazing Son that he is so fond of. And of course, that can happen unless we're with Jesus where he is. Real back to the end of the last chapter where in the farewells he said, you will scatter to your own homes. That's what failure looks like. Let me tell you what glory looks like. That's ending up in Jesus' home. To be with him where he is where he could see his glory. Our great hope is not the day we see our glory. Like we got all our projects done, we got every virtue possible, we never do another sin, all of that. That's not what's ahead of us uh, as some great hope. Our hope is to see his glory. That is what we long for. Now this is back to God's big plan, the glory of the sun, the splendor of the king, clothed in majesty, we sing it. Factor in all the added glory that comes with him having accomplished God's will in the incarnation and the cross, Philippians 2, kind of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. Think of the dazzle of the transfiguration where three of the disciples got to see Jesus just glowing like like the sun and not in humiliation but in a temporary preview of his exaltation think of that transcendent shining glory we can hardly comprehend it it just knocks your socks off which makes me feel like you know when you get to glory you're not going to need a sock drawer anymore thank God well request finished Jesus ends with a final status report it's a review of the present situation as they move to Gethsemane righteous father even though the world doesn't know you I know you and these men know that you sent me I make your name known to them. I made your name known to them and I'll continue to make it known as long as I'm still with them. And I'll get this last purpose and let's just highlight this. Um, Wow. The reason he reveals the Father to them is this. So that the love with which you've loved me that is eternally before the founding of the world may be in them even now. And I in them. As these men are going to be, they're going to be overtaken by their weakness shortly in the coming hours. They are not going to find hatred and disgust and rejection from an angry father. But rather the father's sustaining love is great as the love the father has for the son. Can you even imagine how great that is? And that is the love he has for you. There's one other way to take that and that is... It could mean so that they will be able to love the son as much as the father does. They'll have that kind of love in their heart. One last gift, Christ in them, I in them. Or as Paul put it, Colossians one, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I've got some take home questions for those of us who have this problem with being disappointed with ourselves. We keep doing the same sins, we even, do some, we even invent some new sins that we thought we'd never do. And we don't measure up even to the household standards we made for ourselves, let alone the things we read in the Bible. Now these seven questions tie in with the seven requests of Christ's prayer, so I want you to kind of put those together as you think about the answers to these questions. Uh, these questions have no good answer if you think the way the postmodern world does. But if you think like Jesus, These answers can change a depressed view of your life to a banquet of joy. Question one, whose glory should I really be worried about? Now look, a person filled with disappointment about himself is worried about the wrong glory. The consuming glory in this prayer is the glory and competence of God and of Christ. And so take your eyes off yourself, marinate in the beauty and the character and the worthiness of Jesus and let that satisfy your soul. I heard about a guy that, uh, who was very depressed that he was not doing a good job as a dad. In fact, he was weeping, but not because he had hurt his kids. His whole attention was on not wanting to feel so crummy about himself. Um, he wanted God to help him do better, not so that God could be seen through his weakness or so that even that his kids would have a better dad. In fact, he resented his kids for making him feel small, which, of course, is the main purpose of children. to humble the parents but he couldn't see that he just didn't want to feel like such a bozo he wanted to use God to make him glorious that kind of thinking is a spiritual dead end (laughs) because it's worried about the wrong glory God won't help you with that he only helps you promote his glory and be satisfied with him so that's the first question it's probably the most important one here's question number two what will sustain my faith when I'm faced with my weakness? Answer, God will. Jesus prayed, keep them in your name. Huh. And the disciples could have thought, you know, here, we have messed up so badly, we may not get another chance. Maybe we should just go hang ourselves like Judas. But no, you can wonder, you know, when you have besetting sins and you, you dig a, such a hole so deep, you wonder if you're ever going to get out. Uh, In fact, you can even let the accumulation of little projects that are unfinished weigh you down, as if your ultimate well-being were at stake. It's not. Jesus wants to lift that burden from your shoulders. Jesus prayed that his Father would keep them from a total wipeout. God will make sure everyone who truly belongs to Christ is never lost. Question three, what circumstances need to change to restore my joy? Answer, none. It just depends on which circumstances you're looking at. I've often told this story, I love this story, about a a balmy October day in 1982. Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin is packed. More than 60,000 diehard fans are watching the University of Wisconsin football team fight it out with the Michigan State Spartans. What soon becomes obvious is that the Badgers are outmatched. But what's really odd, even though the score keeps getting tipped more and more lopsided toward Michigan, Uh, What's weird is that in the stands, there are bursts of, of, of applause. There are shouts of joy erupting all over the stadium. I mean, how could they cheer when their team is losing so badly? Well, it turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers are beating the St. Louis Cardinals in the third game of the World Series, 1982 World Series. Look it up. Many of the fans in the stands are listening to transistor radios and responding to something other than their immediate crummy circumstances now if you let your disappointments dominate your immediate vision then you're going to be sad about your version of the badgers getting stomped but if you think like Jesus by listening to the words of victory word based joy then you're going to have every reason to cheer and that's every day How is it that we dampen our spirit based on being dissatisfied with ourselves when two very powerful things can make your joy unquenchable? Let me give them to you briefly. These are worth a whole sermon, I'm sure. The first is that even though you have reasons to be dissatisfied with yourself, you never have any good reason to be dissatisfied with Jesus. And that is a powerful potion, much more than how you feel about your circumstances. But the other thing is that we may be down on ourselves, but Jesus is not. I know so many Christians who labor under the fear that God is dissatisfied with them. That is tragic. You know, I used to sing a solo. I think I shared this recently, but, you know, I have a really bad memory now because I'll think I said something here recently when it was actually 20 years ago. But anyway, uh, when I was a boy soprano, I used to sing this song, I Am Satisfied With Jesus. Uh, And the chorus was like that. I am satisfied with Jesus. And it ended with this question. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? And that was meant to motivate a fifth grader to behave himself. <laughs> but the answer to that question, because my question inside was already, well, probably not. <laughs> I wasn't that good. But the answer to that question really is yes. Especially when I think of Calvary. Calvary. <laughs> Think of Calvary. I find my sins paid for, and the Father's satisfied that everything needed to make him smile at me has already been done. To tell us, it is finished. Jesus never loses sleep because your drawers are messy. All right? Now, I'm not saying he doesn't get grieved when we sin, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't be diligent to make lists and finish projects and certainly work on your sins. But are you actually going to postpone joy until all your projects are done and all your sins have been mastered? Do you really think <laughs> that the joy of someday perfecting yourself is even all that satisfying Satisfying compared to the satisfaction of God for you, about you, this very minute? A joy not based on you but on him, based on grace. Now do what you must do, but do it with joy, not for joy. Understand what I'm saying? Do it with joy, not for joy. A burdened Christian is an oxymoron. Maybe some other kind of moron too, but an oxymoron. Offer a satisfied heart to the Lord because you know he is already satisfied with you. Now let's, let's move quickly to the rest of them. Question four. Is there an enemy too strong for me? Answer, no. Question five, what am I good for now that I have failed? Answer, you're still useful for the gospel. Think about Peter, he failed so miserably, he was closest to being a washout. But the Lord said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Lord used flawed messengers to reach other flawed people. Question six, why? Would my neighbors pay attention to the gospel when I'm such a schmutz? Now, actually, you might get a better hearing when they don't get the vibe from you that you're trying to pull off Mr. Perfect. Now, I'm not saying a, a evangelism strategy is to be as schmutzy as you can be. But I knew a guy that was so jealous of people who seemed to have it all together that the only thing that delighted him was when he found out somebody as messed up as he was. <laughs> can you relate to that at all? Um, actually, people aren't looking for your perfection. They see that, they either see that as hypocrisy or they see it as, uh, I can't be that good, so I can't be a Christian. So don't worry about that part of it when it comes to impacting your neighbor. What they're looking for are, I would say about three things. Humility. So if you're not perfect and you don't cover it, you're just honest. Number two, your unity with diverse Christians who love and help each other. They should see that uh, not because we're showing off, but because it's real. And three, they need to see your satisfaction with how God is treating you, especially when things aren't going that great. When they see you struggling with common things, infertility or you know, chronic pain or, uh, I don't know, financial reversals or trying to raise a disabled child. They see you doing that and they see you doing that with contentment in Christ. That's gospel impact and then question seven what can I look forward to when I've already messed up in this world answer a whole lot of eternity where Jesus is in his very presence seeing his glory full of his joy watching how the father loves him you can be filled with that love right now everything you ever wanted And not your glory, but his. A pastor from Detroit took a two-week vacation. uh, Traveled to Ireland. His only living uncle was about to celebrate his 80th birthday. And on the great day, he and his uncle got up early and they dressed in silence. And they took a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney and stopped to watch the sunrise. Suddenly, the old uncle turned and he started skipping down the road. He was radiant. He was just beaming. He was smiling from ear to Irish ear. His nephew said, Uncle Seamus, you really look happy. I am, lad. Well, you want to tell me why? And his own uncle replied with this. Yes, you see. My Abba is very fond of me. You spend your whole life Checking off boxes, even doing great things for God, but if you have done it without joy in the Savior's love, then you've wasted your life. Jesus loves you. Be satisfied in his love. Know, and so here's the prayer. We've looked at it. Know that he faithfully prays for you. Your life is not determined by your faithfulness, but by his. He ever lives to make intercession for you. His men failed. We fail. They were disappointed. We are disappointed with ourselves. But Jesus never fails us. Be satisfied in him this very moment. Let's pray. As we finish this gospel study through John, we thank you, Father, for showing Jesus to us. This is our great treasure. These are the words that birth joy in our hearts as we think about them. And in the days of our struggles, when we feel like we're barely holding our own, when we're even over our head in projects and in even the struggles of just trying to be a heartfelt Christian, Remind us that we have a Savior, an amazing Savior, who prays for us, loves us, pulls us through no matter what. Thank you in Jesus' name.